Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello, this is David Eastall, and you're listening to the C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life. As I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. Always playing the finest in indie pop and beyond. And this week's special guest is going to be Toya, who I spoke to last week. So I want to bring you that interview in probably three or four easy-to-digest little segments for your enjoyment and delight, as well as the usual award-worthy playlist. So I'm going to start with your favourite and mine to get the party rolling. This is going to be, yes, you've guessed it, it's a mystery. Excitable stuff. There you go. That was Toya with a track titled It's a Mystery. I'm sure you 
knew that. Anyway, that came out in 1981 from the album Anthem. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. And this week's special guest is going to be Toya Wilcox, who I spoke to last week for an incredibly fascinating conversation interview. So, um, like I said, I'll break that up into about three or four easy to digest little segments. And um, it's definitely worth checking out towards especially the end bit, I say. Um because she does reveal some fascinating insights into her life. So um, do prepare for that. And also, just to say that um, later on in the month, on the 26th of July, she is going to be playing at Holt uh, as part of the Holt Festival. And also she has a new album titled In the Court of the Crimson Queen, which is a great title because she's married to Robert Fripp, who's in King Crimson. I'm sure it all ties up into a holistic Love fest, as all these things do. Anyway, before we have any more interview, I think we should have one more, um, yes, one more song, and then we'll get into some quality chat. This is another one of those classics that you'll love. I want to be free. Indeed, more chart-bound sounds. That's Toya Wilcox with a track, I Want to Be Free. And that's also taken from her 1981 album, Anthem. I mean, basically just going by that album. She has got other work, which is brilliant. And also she has this new album. And I have got um, a couple of tracks from it that I will be playing on the show. So do check it out. And also, before we have the first part of the interview with Toya, um, just a little bit of admin. If you want to contact me, I always love your messages, especially if they're positive and groovy. Otherwise, just don't bother. Um, you can via Facebook, Twitter, just go to at C86show and I will be there. And also all the shows that I've done for the last two and a half years have been um, sort of 
archive podcast. So you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, and also Mixcloud. They're all there and much, much more. And every week um, I do have a special guest. Um, so if there's anybody from the world of indie pop that you're interested in, check it out. I've probably got them. Anyway, this is going to be my first part of the interview with Toya, where I've been talking about surviving that wonderful world that is rock and roll. And um, she's been in the business for over 40 years. And I just wondered how she kept Toya. How do you do it? Um, I, uh, it's a very, it's, it's a good question. It's impossible to answer. Uh, I think, I think if you come into this business, you just need perseverance. Uh, I think some people uh, work so hard that they do get burnt up. But I've always been very careful that I only sing no more than four times a week. Um, I'm going to contradict myself on that next year because I have a huge tour next year where I'm doing 15 dates in a row before I get a day off. But um, I'm very self-protective. Uh, when I'm on the road, I, I don't speak. I don't drink alcohol, never drink coffee. I, I keep away from anything that can damage the voice. Uh, and I think some people are on the road and they live a certain lifestyle, certainly when they're young, which is a party lifestyle. And to some extent, I, I attempted it, but never could do it. And that might be why I, I've kind of survived so long, is that I actually am not a late-night person. I can't party all night and function. So it, it, that might have been, ironically, my saving grace. Yes. Well, it's interesting, because I've been kind of interviewing you know, a lot of bands over the years. And one thing that I've noticed, and it's quite interesting, is that that now there's a lot to do with the, the um, I suppose, the money and the accounts. And, and when people tour now, you know, and I was talking to Fish and there was Nils Lofgren recently, and they both need to sort of cram as many dates into that kind of three or four weeks, you know, especially during Europe, because this just the economics is is kind of quite tight so you, they have to really work themselves but they know as they get to that age that god this is getting really hard going and they definitely need to have a good bed at night because they can't they can't sleep on some sort of tatty old place anymore so yes it must be quite tough when you, you as you're getting older and still keeping hopefully flexible but maintaining that kind of my god we can't have too many days off because we're paying for the pa we're paying for the road crew we've got the van hire so it must sometimes Sometimes be quite hard and punishing to to go through that at, at, at the same time. I don't do those kind of tours. I, I never have. Um, I'm married to a musician. He does. I mean, even when you do arena tours, which my husband does, you have to group them together. Uh, when I did tour like that, I had management telling me, "No, you can't have a day off. It's too costly." Well, what about when I've damaged my voice so much we have to cancel? It, that, that's just not taken into account. Um, I, I manage myself. I only do groups of gigs together where I'm never away from home more than four nights because psychologically that has a price. The, the, um, I know Fish very well and I know how hard he works. But those back-to-back -back gigs in a tour bus have never, ever been right for me. Therefore, I've never done them. Uh, I know that it would affect me emotionally. So I, I've managed myself since 1990, and I know what I can handle and what I can't handle. And I've, I've been really, really adamant um, about that and tenacious that if you want 150% from me, this, these are the rules. Um, so I, I only really sing Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And what you've just talked about is artists that just go right through for three weeks to three months. Uh, I, I would not survive that. And, and that is probably the difference between me and them. Yes, well, quite. And it was quite interesting because because I've never heard this before. And this is the only person who ever said it. Niels Lofgren said he actually gets really homesick. So after three or four weeks, he needs to go back to see his dog and home and family. <laughs> so it was kind of like, yes, I'm the same. I, <laughs> yes, um, I had a very homesick husband in Turin who was ready to come home and pack it all in. I've heard this for 33 years of marriage. So I, I compile little films of our house and of sequences that I know will make him laugh. 
and I send them over to him and that grounds him. I've known so many unhappy musicians. And the thing is, we want to play. We want to be in front of an audience. We want to express ourselves through our music. It's quite a cruel um, sequence of events that we have to do it through a kind of strange traveling imprisonment. Um, it's completely juxtaposed, whatever I'm trying to say. <laughs> it's, it goes against itself. Yes. Um, so it, it's nothing new. It, it's how do you survive that? <laughs> and I said to my husband yesterday, I said, look, if you're doing this arena tour and you're staying in Novotels, there's something wrong. I, I, about oh, 30 years ago, I was with the police on tour because I was doing press with Sting for, for a film called Quadrophenia. And I said, they were in castles. If you're playing arenas, stay in a castle. Don't stay in a Novotel. And, you know, it's the management does this to these people. Yes, the management yes. cuts corners and the musicians suffer. Yes, this is very true. I did hear, I did speak to a bass player who was um, working with Jesus and the Mary Train, and it was a bit like, like you, the backing band almost had to sort of like, you'll have to find your own way there, and you're not going to get paid or paid for the days off. And um, and the, you know, the two key members of the band, you know, got nice treatment, and the rest just had to sort of struggle along, sort of. Oh, I don't do that. I manage this, and yes. if we have a off they're in the same hotel as me if i fly business i pay for them to fly business because with my my band um i've not been able to give them a pay rise for about 10 years uh that i make sure they have a certain amount of money clear of all expenses goes into their bank account the day of the gig i cover everything their travel their food their hotels and they have the same as me i, I could not travel with my band knowing that they were not experiencing the same benefits as me um wh when i have to go abroad with um house bands which aren't my band they're a big band put together for a multiple artist lineup then it, it might be different but none of us of art as artists would allow a musician to suffer um that that i hope is something that's gone out the window a long long ago because we are all working the same hours we're all doing the same journey we all need nutrition and sleep i just wouldn't allow that um, and the story you just told i hope was something that happened a while ago and not today <laughs> It wasn't that long ago, I don't think. <laughs> it was just, you know, it's like when, when a band sort of gets that kind of offer to reform and sort of put their differences to one side and then they do a tour and they think, oh, this is great, let's, but let's kind of keep the costs as low down as possible because they obviously realise... I think when a band hasn't been about for a year and they do that, they reform, a lot of people are curious and they go and see them and they think, oh, let's do that again in 18 months and actually there aren't so many people and then the management get a bit more kind of, um, yeah, tight with the pennies, I guess. But look... <laughs> that's just rock and roll because the the, the, um, the show that I've do the C86 show mostly these are the indie bands from the 80s and, and there's a kind of a five year narrative I've found which is like they get together they, they make a bit of a sound they get that play with John Peel they do the session the album then they have the tricky second album and a bit of a tour around the country and possibly Europe and then things fall apart but your career you really don't have that same narrative because from the late 70s right through to the 80s you were literally an album a year it was like David Bowie during the 70s so how did you manage to keep that creative process going so relentlessly because that's quite an extraordinary I've not met many artists who've managed to do that almost for a decade well I think the thing is is what what you've just mentioned in comparison is management measuring success by audience numbers now that that's Add two and two, you get four. That that does make sense. But for me, it's always been about development, creative development. Um, I have a, a, a band, an American band called The Humans, which I'm now going to confuse you with because it's all being re-released next year and it's becoming Toyer and The Humans because the word Toyer gets more people's attention. Um, there is no compromise with that band. And with Toya, the Toya band that's coming to halt um, on the 26th of July, you know, that, that is a name that has 42 years of catalogue music. And the audience want to hear the hits. But 
ironically, what the audience won't know on the 26th is that I was number two in the rock charts in April with an album called In the Course of the Crimson Queen. People don't follow the charts anymore. But that album has had three hits, three charting hits off it. So I got to fit 42 years of music into one show. So it's why am I so creative? Because it's about being creative. It's not about audience numbers. Yes. I I don't want to live a, a life of banality where we are all increasingly being sucked robotically into the Internet to lose our individuality. And I've been keenly aware of that for 30 years. So for me, it's not about selling something. It's actually about a need to express and a need to develop my expressive voice, my expressive, that tiny part of the brain that makes us creative. I I can't leave that alone. I can't ignore it because I, I, I believe as a spiritual soul, that's why we, we, we are here and why we're so unique. And trying to explain to people that life shouldn't be simple, it shouldn't be formulaic, they don't get it. They, some people say, why do you make your life so hard? And I said, well, we're, we're here for a journey. We're not here to just do something in our 20s and then sit on our laurels for, for 80 years. We're actually here to develop, and I think that has always been my philosophy, that the creative process is my relationship with whatever put me on this planet. That's what that's about. And that's the first part of my interview with Toya. As we were talking about the creative process and much, much more, I have got more, so don't you worry. But um, before we have any more chat, I think we should break it up with some more music. Um, This is going to be taken from the new album that only came out this year, from Toya, titled In the Court of the Crimson Queen, and it's a deluxe edition. This is the opening track called Dance in the Hurricane, and you are going to love it, I know. Mother who gave me my name 
What Not to Like, that is Toya from, um, that's a track titled Dance in the Hurricane, that's taken from the new album In the Court of the Crimson Queen, which has been, um, yes, originally came out in 2008, but it's been jazzed up a bit and has more added, um, I think, four added tracks. But this next part of the interview with Toya, um, she explains more because I was slightly sort of, I don't know, not groping so much as just floundering really about um, what the process had been and um, she corrected me as you would expect. Toya, tell us more about this uh, new album now. Yeah, I've got to fill in the gaps there. Um, what happened was the, the the entire album was used in a musical called Crime and Punishment, Di Vioski's Crime and Punishment in London. Um, and then I, on my 60th birthday last year, the fans put a track number one across the board in the charts. And then we were an unsigned band. They did that via um, downloads. So a record company came to me and they said, this album obviously is going to be successful. It, it, it keeps having repeated success in downloads. So we want to re-release it, but we want it to have five new tracks. And over the past 10 years, I've been writing for movies with my songwriting partner, Simon Darlow. So the last track on In the Court of the Crimson Queen was finished in January of this year. Um, and that's released on the 15th of July as a single. It's called Dance in the Hurricane. So there is an element of a re-release about this album. But what we did, we added live bass, live drums to what was a, pre a programmed album at that point. Um, we finished it in January, and it was released in April. And across the board, it went into the top 20 of all the charts. In some charts, it went as high as number two. So it, it's had success, and it's still having success to the point that we're still releasing singles off it um, right through the summer. Yes. So that's the background to it. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I, I remember, was it last year when... Uh... David Bowie's 80s stuff got slightly remixed and had this sort of that, that 80s vibe taken out or that kind of Trevor Horn-esque kind of production and then actually listening to those albums again which were a little bit sort of, you know, so-so suddenly sounded, you know, kind of fresh and new again because on that, uh, this kind of album that's just come out there are two sens uh, fantastic songs one is Sensational, which absolutely rocks and the other one is Heal Ourselves which has a slight quality of um, reminding me slightly of Guns N' Roses and uh, November Rain actually but fantastic material and 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 you know considering um you know you've been sort of making music since the late 70s you know you must be really chuffed with sort of seeing this coming out as a deluxe edition yeah i mean it's it's been a gorgeous year um it, it's uh, it's nice to be talked to as i'm a, as if i'm an artist and what i mean by that is uh, you know, some people see you as only an 80s artist um, and some people just don't see you as a writer at all. Uh, and what this album ha has done is kind of firmly put me in the new artist category, which as a, a constantly touring singer is a fantastic thing to experience after 42 years in the business. Yeah. It takes a long time. Well, it's interesting, because going back to that single that song, I'm not sure if it's a single, the Sensational, which is the second track on it, um, it did remind me of a famous quote from a Mr. Fripp who was talking about working with David Bowie, saying, was it sort of hairy rock and roll? You know, you know it, um, because it gives you a... He mentioned the word erection, which I might have to edit out. But, you know, it does rock, that particular song, doesn't it? And you must enjoy still sort of getting out and still giving that everything you've got. Um, it's, there, there's certain connections you have with the audience and the connection is always through the music and there's certain songs you do where you feel that connection from every single member of the audience and, and Sensational is one of those songs. Yes, and I did sort of, you know, that was the one that really, you know, and I, I also think that um, Dance in the Hurricane is another kind of great opener because it does sort of hit you in the face and it kind of gives you that uplifting feeling. Because bizarrely, I'm of that age group, sort of not going far, too far back in the past, actually I'm going really past, but I used to watch Eddie Skewstring and that was the first time that you suddenly became a part of on my radar. You know, it's like, oh God, this is, you know, because it reminded, I just actually thought this, you know, you had that brilliant song called Dance, didn't you, in that particular episode which was a long time ago and um, I used all my music in that episode so 
Um, I think it was a very progressive thing for them to do. It was just massively successful. It, it was such an exciting episode. They captured the nature of punk. Uh, and I can remember it, it just turned everything around for me. TV is by far the biggest medium, or was back then, to, to get your music across. Yes, and it's quite interesting because the two people that I've always admired a lot, and especially with age and realising how many people fall to the wayside, was David Bowie on one side and Lemmy the other side because they were A, both the same age, and they just they didn't have a kind of plan B to a degree. I know David Bowie had a bit of a problem with his health towards the latter part, but, but again, they were just people who just stuck with it. And with Bowie, he did a lot of acting, and obviously your acting career is, is kind of phenomenal as well. And so to do the acting and the music, and the creative industries is is quite stunning because in the last couple of days I watched this documentary on Kate Nash because I just love you know rock pop documentaries and it was like this artist who had this massive success and then suddenly within a couple of years she's kind of got no money and hasn't has to try and start again so you've managed you know again navigating those kind of tricky waters because that's the one thing that catches people out so much isn't it so did you looking back on your career sort of see some moments where you thought oh that was brilliant and that was the tricky period um i think from standing where i am today where it's just the best year of my life um i i don't kind of look back with negativity i i think you know when things are going well you can look back and see sense in everything um for me what would be tricky is being invisible uh, and in my 30s, as a woman, I definitely suffered invisibility. Um, there, there's so many preconceptions about that decade for a woman that, you know, when are you going to have children? When are you going to settle down? When are you going to stop doing what you do? I mean, I can look back and see that period as really one of the most insulting periods of my life. But it's made me who and what I am today. And when you live with preconception and preconceived ideas, then you're really running blind in a dark room. It, it's, it's not easy. But uh, I see all these experiences of, of making me who and what I am. They're the building blocks of who we are at the end of our life when we go to meet our maker. So I very rarely look back and think, God, that was bleak. And I've spent 33 years with my husband telling him that you know, a period in his life was not bleak. It made him who he is today. And I think perhaps that is what makes an artist an artist, is that you see these episodes as giving you a, a kind of depth. So you ask me, do I look back and see a bleak period? Perhaps I look back and see a period that made me stronger. Yes. This is true. And actually, I, you know, on that subject, I love self-help stuff. Um, you know, it's often a lesson. You know, often you get given the same kind of lesson until you learn. And then that situation doesn't appear anymore. And you think, oh, yes, because actually I tackled that. That next the next time that came to me, I tackled, you know, I chose a different attitude or different thought or a different kind of approach. And then suddenly those kind of little issues or niggles can go away but you think actually yeah that was great I'm, I'm pleased that I've, I had another chance to sort of do it again but this time I'll do it you know a little bit differently and take it take it from a different angle and then it works I think that's always you know a good philosophy because actually just just as sort of you know because I was a bit of an indie kid in the 80s and I realized that you know you coming along made a huge difference to the next wave of all the other indie kids who from that kind of John Peel-esque world. So, you, you know, you were hugely influential, sort of seeing you on top of the pops and doing that to say, well, this is what I can do. I have to answer at this point. John Peel hated me. John Peel halted my career in America because of, at that point in time, um, America would only take acts that John Peel liked. That's how strong his influence was. And John Peel felt that I was contrived I believe he was very, very wrong. Um, so, you know, I've had that tide of negativity to fight against for 42 years. And now people have seen me perform live and they go, oh, my God, we missed the boat with this woman. I'm selling out around Europe, around Asia, around the UK. And people are going, oh, my God, this woman is such a good singer and she writes great songs 
So I don't have an idealistic view of John Peel. And yes, I did change the music landscape. I changed it for women. And I changed it for attitude towards life. And I didn't do it with the help of John Peel. No. So it's, you know, that's a really interesting one. Um, I agree with you. I changed the landscape. Yes. But well, I had to do it on my own. Yes. Well, I, I sort of realised that, you know, there were, I've interviewed quite a few people who, you know, he didn't sort of pick up and he did sort of dismiss a bit, which I sort of realised looking back, he probably, anyway, you know, he's not here anymore. But anyway, you know, it was, you know, they were people that he, I, I think, kind of got quite wrong. And, you know, obviously it wasn't good, but I, I was trying to make the point. That I, I was trying to make the point that it was the people that you influenced that came I along. Have, I have to voice my opinion here. I'm in the BBC virtually every other day and I walk past the John Peel building every day and I am literally putting two fingers up to it because... Yeah, he influenced music, and he means so much to so many people. But to me, he left me drowning, not waving. And, you know, I respect him. I respect his past. I respect his judgment. But he got it wrong with me. And, you know, this is a prime example of why women are, are not... Um, are not using their voices as exclamation marks they're using their voices as a scream because so many of us have had to swim an ocean alone and i'm one of them and i've only brought that up because you've brought up john peel i never ever have said anything like this before in the past 40 years but i have thought where I am today and I am really good at what I do so you know there are a lot of artists out there who have had to struggle against the tide Indeed, it's good to uh, clear these things up. That's the second part of my interview with Toya and still there is more to come and it does get fascinating, so do stay tuned. Anyway, as I've said before and I'll say it again, she is going to be playing, well she's got a huge tour and she's got a lot of um, exciting things happening, so go to her website that's the first thing. Second, second thing to make a note of, she's going to be playing in Holt on the 26th of July as part of the Holt Festival and a new album out titled In the Court of the Crimson Queen. Anyway, this is David Esau. This is the C86 show and this is going to be a track taken again from her new album, which I have to say, um, I've been fascinated by. This is sensational. Sensational, that's the word.
There you go, that's uh, Toya, and that's a track taken from the new album. And that's titled uh, Sensational. Hello, this is David Esau. This is the third part of my interview with Toya, where I've been talking about um, the creative process that people have. Um, and this has gone on for ages, actually. I've edited this my piece out. Um, but this is the general gist of it. I'd been talking about the, you know, mostly people have five years in the music industry, things happen, change, and then they drop out. Normally, one of those things, or not normally, but one of them is kind of the change in musical trends. And uh, I was wondering how Toya, who'd been in the business for over the 40 years, had coped with those kind of changing times, and those fickle fans and critics... We hate those critics. Anyway, Toya, how did you cope? I think I answered that before in that um, you just don't follow trends. You don't follow what's expected of you. Yeah, there were certain elements of of all of what you've just said. In 1985, I was signed by CBS to their new portrait label. And at that time, they wanted me to be the new Pat Benatar. And I came up with an album that's hopefully about to be re-released called Minx, um, which was produced by Christopher Neal. And it's a great album. Um, it, it tried to mature me into a different direction. But I've learned over the years that your audience stays with you. And I, my audience know me as Toya probably before they know me as the music. And I go all over the place playing in beautiful art centres and beautiful town halls and churches to sold-out shows. And they're people that are coming because they want to see me. You get a lot of mothers bringing their daughters to see me and a lot of daughters bringing their mothers to see me. And part of that is they want to see Toya. And I learned that about 15 years ago, that the power of what I do is connected to me. Um, So if a trend comes in and you're against the trend, I'd say stick by that because the longevity is in riding that trend and and riding over the top of it. Um, There was absolutely no point in the 90s me doing anything dance-orientated. I did an album called Dream Child that has very dedicated followers. The Utah Saints remixed it, and it's a great album, but it's not me. Um, so I think you have to, as an artist, keep hold of the essence of who and what you are and, and kind of forget the trends. Yes. Uh, and that's where the survivors stand. Well, it's always, yeah, but that, that's the kind of interesting thing is that those people, and there was, I, you know, David Bowie was one and Robert Plant, and there was probably a few others who, who did fantastic work. And then they got into the 80s and obviously someone said, look, you've got this new, there's a new sound, there's a new producer, there's a, you've got to go for this and get a mullet hairstyle. And, and they did. And it's like, yeah. you, you look back and you think, oh, yes, that's, that's a tricky period. And actually Rod Stewart, I remember when they were talking about his life, and they were going through it. He, it wasn't his personal life. He was like his kind of the 80s period. He was like, can we just skip that now and get to the next decade? Because it's not good. I don't want to look at those videos. So it must be tricky when there is somebody just nudging you in a slightly subtle or unsubtle way to say, yeah, you're going to follow this. And then I guess it's when you look back, you think, oh, God, I didn't follow what I really, my heart, my soul meant, you know, was saying to you. Well, everyone, you you know, every artist you've mentioned are run by management and record companies. And you've got to remember that record companies and management are companies. They're companies that have to have levels of success. Um, I am independent on every level of my life. Um, and I can survive not having commercial success because I present, I produce, I act in films and on stage. I have other sources of income. And also, I am a phenomenal investor. Um, The people in in the know know that I have a bedrock of investment underneath me. So every artist you've talked about is reliant on the manager and the record company. And now, looking back in retrospect of the amount of decades I've been in this business, in 1990, I took over my own management. I put every penny I had into investment. Um, And that makes me stand strong in the bad times. So trying to explain that to an artist who needs alcohol and and nicotine to create something, they kind of look at me and think, that's a horrible life. Well, 
I had to do it. I had no choice. So my, my background as a writer is knowing I've actually got quite a few millions supporting me that I have made and built and secured. Um, no one has ever done it that way. It's taken me 30 years to teach my husband how to do it that way. But it creates incredible independence. I recently went to my record company, who's been my record company for the past nine months, and I said, look, I will give you this money to go 50-50 in buying my back catalogue. I mean, you could literally pick them up off the floor. Um, and, you know, we're, we're attempting to get the whole of my catalogue under one umbrella. Well, I've, uh, the only other person I've known who's done this is Kate Bush. Excellent. Bowie because Bowie went on the open market and did it. So, you know, very few artists kind of have an accountant brain, and I do. <laughs> yeah, that's very good, actually. That's good. Because I know it was um, William Burroughs who said, you know, you've got to build a good name and keep your name clean and protect yes. your work. And that is kind of, and obviously you got that at an early age, and you, you avoided that kind of horrendous pitfall that so many Didn't, people have. I did not avoid it. I went through it, and I thought, <laughs> Only I can get myself out of this. Only I, because I actually believe every, this comes from, you know, pretty idealistic belief system. We are all potential. We're potential throughout our life. Potential never stops. So I realized that I am the potential. And when things, you know, were financially wrong, it didn't mean my poten potential was turned off. I, I taught myself how to do things. I, I taught myself my own per perseverance and tenacity and, and rebuilt that structure in my life. And in retrospect, I can see that what I did instinctively was realize that the potential never ended. Yes. And and as and, and obviously you're still sort of absolutely firing on all gas. And, you, you know, there's obviously some new kind of I suppose vague trends aren't there, like um, Bohemian Rhapsody and Rocket Man. Have you are you st have you started looking at your own life and thinking, God, this could make an amazing film? No, because I don't think I'm a big enough name. I, I am a, a cult artist. I mean a lot to women, um, and I respect that. Uh, and I think I mean a lot to women because of that survival instinct uh, and the message of potential. Um, but I, I'm not a big enough name. Uh, I've been approached to have my music used in musicals. And also, I think if ever it, that kind of bio, bio, um, biopic was ever made, it would probably put me in the third person. And it would be about some strange child that had to fight adversity. But I don't think it would be done in my name. Yes. Um, yeah. it, 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 you know, you're looking at Bohemian Rhapsody, the world's biggest band, who were actually the world's biggest band and went on Live Aid, and the world agreed that they were the world's biggest band. And Elton John, I mean, my God, Rocket Man is just, I think, a stunning movie. And if people don't know this, it's Dexter Fletcher made them both. And Dexter is not allowed to be credited as directing on Bohemian Rhapsody because he came in and revamped it. And probably what people don't know about Rocketman is it had a reshoot. Um, and that was Dexter, Flexer, Dexter Fletcher, who I'm linked with through Derek Jarman, the film director. So, you know, those were not easy journeys. Both those movies had, had, had to rethink. Um, and I think they're magnificent films. Yes, this is true. I know there's been a few other then sort of smaller documentary films made. There was one on the, the wedding present and the go-betweens and the band from New Zealand called The Chills. And there's probably lots of others where people have just said, actually, you know, they were sort of, again, the, the kind of those slightly indie bands who are still kind of going in some way. So I just wondered if with all your material and footage and stuff that you think this would be a nice thing to, like a lot of people I spoke to, they like to kind of start thinking about archiving it. Not because they're slowing down, it's just like, Actually, if we can do it now, it means it won't just going to get thrown away or lost. So I just wondered if you've also thought, actually, I've got a lot of stuff here that would be great to make a really amazing documentary. Because frankly, frank people like me on a BBC Four on a Friday night, you know, a rock pop documentary just, you know, is heaven, really. So I just wondered if you'd sort of were a little bit tempted with one of those. 
I absolutely love BBC Four. I was watching a Carly Simons documentary the other night in a hotel um, at midnight, and I oh God, it just it brought me alive. It was so wonderful. Um, yes, I am approached about doing a documentary um, on my life very often. Um, at the moment, um, a documentary maker, a, a really brilliant documentary maker called Toby Amos, is making one about my husband, and he then wants to make one about me. Now, the problem I have with these, this kind of filming is they work on jeopardy, and I don't want to be seen um, as someone that has jeopardy in my life because that's kind of an echo behind me. Um, and even in present day, if there's any jeopardy in my life, it's an echo. I, I stand in a positive light, and those don't make great documentaries. No. So if I allow a, a, a documentary to be made about me, I also have to allow it to probably catapult itself off a negative story. And I'm, I, that's not me. It's just not me. Um, you know, the, the flower blooms in a storm. The documentary maker will want to film the storm. Um, so I, I'm, I'm just not sure about that. And also, I think I'm still developing. Yes. I have to say, the Kate Nash one is all about being in a storm. That was, a, that was quite traumatic, actually. But um, yes, because something, obviously, you know, you your life has been a spiritual you you obviously feel like your life has been a kind of a spiritual journey did that was that something that sort of developed as you know past your teens and 20s or or sort of was it sort of something that you felt from you know a very young young age very young it was very young my mother gave birth to me at home um she went into labor on a sunday she was making the sunday lunch called the midwife she gave birth to me upstairs in the family home and then told the midwife, this isn't my daughter. So I've always been brought up as an outsider. Um, and I've always had exceptionally strange dreams. My mother was terrified of me. So um, I've always been made to feel that I'm not normal. Uh, and I think that when you're brought up like that, it makes you explore things. I've never felt I've arrived. So how can I put this? It's blatantly obvious to me that this lives we all have here in the now is part of a greater picture. It's never, ever been anything else to me that, um, you know, we live, we're born, we die, blackout. It, it's ju just so obviously not that it's part of a greater picture. Yes. But when do you start to sort of be able to find that balance and sort of a certain amount of harmony? Because because obviously the, that, that childhood period must have been really traumatic while living with parents or mother like that. So I just wondered how. And then, you know, you, you entered the one career that is probably not very good for anybody's kind of calm and, and tranquility in life. I think I found it um, the, the moment I met Robert, Robert Fripp, my husband, because I was living in a world where everyone was telling me I was wrong up until that point. Uh, and m my mother was not a kind woman. When I phoned her in, in 83 and told her I'd won Best Female Singer at the Rock and Pop Awards, which were the Brits, she said, well, it's not going to last forever. Enjoy it. Oh, and be careful. Don't fall on it. It will kill you. Meaning don't fall on the award. It will kill me. <laughs> I mean, absolutely every success I had was thrown back at me as a negative. And when I met my husband, he slowly pointed all this out. He said that your, your mother has created a reality for you that is not real. It's just, it, it, it's a substance she's created, a toxic substance. And slowly he was able to point all this out, that my alienation had been created by someone else. And it's taken a long time, a long time to be able to step out of that substance and see it as another. Um, and he was able to give me a language that I, I was not able to use in my family life. And that, that is quite something extraordinary. Yes, absolutely. That is incredible. And as they got older, I mean, I'm not sure if your parents are alive or not, 
did did you sort of manage to sort of kind of make any peace with that that kind of part of your life or did you just have to sort of let that go and let it drift um ironically once you know robert became like the the counselor between me and my mother me and my mother were never going to meet um and the most remarkable moment i had with my mother was the day my father had a stroke it was fatal and the ambulance had just taken my father away and mum phoned me and she said, your father can't move, um, an ambulance is here. So I went straight over and mum was cleaning the house and the paramedics had told me my father was going to die any minute. And I said, mum, dad is going to go, stop cleaning the house, we need to get to um, A&E. And I just saw her, in that moment, I saw her soul wake up. And I had two years with her before she died, and they were remarkable. So that was kind of like peace and closure in, in sort of that period of time. Um, she became the most happy, funny, clever, witty human being I ever knew in those two years. Something released her, and she became who she should have been. And it was that two years was her life. Wow. That's Does that make sense? Yes, that makes sense. It's almost like the father somehow, I don't know, held it wasn't. It wasn't dad that trapped her. It was convention. She, she was born just before the war. She was 12 years old during the war. She was never taught to write. She was trapped by convention. She married at 19, immediately started having children, and she wasn't allowed to be her. God, that is extraordinary. What a story. Anyway, and then, you know, obviously you must have been able to breathe even better than you'd ever breathed before. Uh, it, it was astonishing, and... Um, my my father's death was heartbreaking, but my the death of my mother was absolutely life wrenching, and it was because we could we we went through fifty more years not being able to have a conversation, and even at the end we didn't know who she was, but I knew that she'd made the journey we're supposed to make to go to the next stage, but. We still died, she died, and we were still strangers. Yes, God, we live amazing lives, don't we? It's an amazing, well, it, amazing I mean, journey. Everything around everyone, you know, this is why I think that sometimes I wish I ruled the world because I think that we are all potential with every individual born, yet we live in structures that don't allow us to be us, and I, I, I see it everywhere everyone has an amazing life yes and obviously when you have that moment of going on stage for two hours that must be a moment where you just kind of can feel elevated into a, a different realm of consciousness i think it's my normality it's i walk on stage and and that is it that is my life and that is sadly the end of the show. A big thank you to Toya for giving me the time for that interview. Thank you for listening. This has been David Eastall. This has been the C86 Show. As I said, you can contact me on Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86 Show. Also, all the shows that I've been doing for nearly two and a half years have been um, archived, so you can find them on... Um, uh, what could I find? Oh, yes, Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud, and Podbean. Check them out. Um, there's a lot of chat. There's a lot of music. There's a lot of depth. Anyway, enough of that. This is going to be... I'll leave you with two tracks from Toya. This is an old one and a new one. The new one is going to be Heal Yourself, obviously, from the new album. And uh, But before that, we're going to have Thunder in the Night. Have a great week.
part of me Whoever broke your dreams I'd like to meet Who will kiss you right On the wrong side of the street Let's heal ourselves Through the night Let's heal our dreams Bring them back to life Let's heal our world And make it right For everyone under the same moonlight Let me mend you I won't sell you hope With a little time I will make it grow I've watched you now And I need to know Can you really make it on your own? Let's heal ourselves through the night. Let's heal our dreams, bring them back to life. Let's heal our world and make it right. For everyone under the same moonlight That spark of life inside your soul It's yours for all eternity You are priceless beyond yours Didn't anyone ever tell you so Let's heal ourselves